Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today we are going to be interviewing Julie Goldstein about the issue of trans children. Now, if you've watched the show before, you'll know that when it comes to trans kids, I just do not believe that children are old enough or mature enough to be able to do something like determine their own gender. Julie, however, disagrees with that, and she actually reached out to me wanting to share her perspective. As an activist, Julie is extremely well informed about the procedures and guidelines that currently surround children transitioning. Regardless of how you or I might feel about trans children, it's important to remember that the views that Julie holds are now what's considered in many ways standard in Western medicine. In the medical, the psychiatric, the psychological community right now, Julie's views are considered mainstream. Honestly, a doctor is more likely to agree with her than with me. These are the opinions, these are the viewpoints, the mentality that we are dealing with, and I think it is so important that we understand them. So with that being said, I am hugely thankful to Julie for being willing to come on here and talk about these issues which I know are controversial. In any case though, let's get on with the show. Hey Julie, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Lauren. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, so you've actually been on Steven Crowder's show before, and I think a lot of people who saw that episode really enjoyed it, really enjoyed the conversation. For people who maybe missed out on that and aren't familiar with you, would you mind, I guess, giving a bit of your background, uh, your interests are, that kind of thing? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm an actress and voiceover artist, but I'm also a trans rights activist. Uh, I think what distinguishes me from other people is I kind of like to talk to people about the data and I like to get other points of view. Um, I've never been un one of those people who's uncomfortable hearing a different point of view, so it's easier to have conversations that way across the aisle, which I don't think a lot of us are having anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's so great, and that's why I'm so happy to have you here today. What I was hoping we could talk about was specifically the issue of trans children. Um, that's something we've talked a lot about on my show. Uh, people who have watched my episodes before know that when it comes to the issue of transitioning and gender, I do think that, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds, these children's these children aren't able to maybe grasp all the complexities and nuance that revolve around gender. Um, I know that's not the point of view you have, and so I was hoping that we could talk about that for people um, who maybe missed out on your conversation with Crowder, because I think you guys did touch upon this when he had you on. What are your views to that? Uh, transitioning and children, uh, do you support it, yes or no? And is there an age where you think that a child would be too young to be able to self-identify their own gender? Well, I think the the most important thing to understand is that when a child comes out or um, they're diagnosed with gender dysphoria as a child, as five, six years old, there's nothing medical that is done. Um, any, even puberty blockers require that the child be at Tanner stage two, uh, which usually takes place around nine to 11, depending on um, the child's development. So even if a child is socially transitioning, let's say, to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, it's basically it, it, the DSM-5 states that they have to have at least six months of significant incompatibility with the gender they identify with and the gender they were born with, uh, including specifically an intense want to be the opposite gender persistence that they are the opposite gender that they were assigned at birth. Um, that's a very... Uh, that's a very uh, big change from the DSM-4. And one of the big problems with the DSM-4 is that it conflated gender nonconformity with gender dysphoria. So you would have children who, uh, let's say a girl is a tomboy or a boy just is effeminate. And 
unfortunately, under the old gender identity disorder diagnosis prior to 2013, they would fall under that diagnosis. Nowadays, under the gender dysphoria diagnosis, they very specifically have to have an intense want need that they are the gender they identify with. And that distinguishes them. And that's that's the way that you can separate the gender nonconforming kids. Um, and even once they get to that point, and let's say they've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and they're five or six, all that really, uh, all that all that's really done with these kids is a social transition, maybe different clothes, different name, nothing that would ever be permanent. So these kids aren't being locked into a path for the rest of their lives. They're actually monitored very closely once they have the diagnosis, um, monitored, uh, of course, medically to see how puberty is continuing. Uh, and then once they hit Tanner stage two, they can start making decisions about puberty, puberty blockers. Uh, usually it's around 13, 14 if they've had intense dysphoria and they've been monitored for their entire life, then they would go on to hormones and um, surgery. Bottom surgery, I'm very specific in that, and it's the current standards that um, you have to be of age of medical consent in order to undergo that type of surgery. Right. Uh, but still, uh, puberty blockers themselves, you're still at an air area where it's reversible. Um, there are uh, specific cases that Norman Spack, uh, Dr. Spack, and Dr. Steensma himself, who is the author of usually the most cited study on desistance, where that 80% desistance rate comes in, um, they notated and studied kids with gender dysphoria. And in Dr. Steensma's study, there were two kids who discontinued puberty blockers. And in Dr. Spack's, there was one. And all that happened is that they continued puberty as normal. There were no irreversible effects. Well, I'm glad you've kind of mentioned that there is the issue of social transitioning and then medical procedures like the, the hormone blockers and then surgery. But before we get into that, I do want to go over just the initial diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So I think I have the current, I guess, criteria here. I believe there's eight different things that they look for. And if you have at least six of them, it can count as a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And, and you mentioned that it was different for the DSM-4, but I'm looking at the list right now and I still see that a lot of the things, and this is, I think, where I'm concerned and people like Deborah So are concerned, that seem to conflate perhaps gender dysphoria with being gender nonconforming. Uh, you know, a girl who likes boys' toys and things like that. I still see Things like a strong preference for wearing clothes typical of the opposite gender, a strong pre preference for playmates of the other gender, a strong preference for the toys, games, or activities stereotypically used or engaged in by the other gender. I still see them listed um, as things that could contribute to a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So, I mean, I I'm just kind of wanting to know how you or someone who is in the profession of diagnosing them, how would they distinguish between this? You know, let's say we have a five-year-old who is meeting a lot of these criteria. Um, and maybe once they even said that they, um, let's say, I'm not a girl and they like to play with boys and boys clothes and stuff. It, if someone was in the medical profession, how would they navigate, navigate that? Because that's where it just seems a little bit arbitrary for me because these are I mean, these are very complex issues, and I just question a child's ability to not only maybe understand their own feelings at the time at such a young age, but then to even beyond that, 
express them coherently, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's a shorthand that uh, therapists who work with gender diverse and uh, gender nonconforming and transgender kids use, which is insistent, persistent, inconsistent. So basically, children, uh, in order for them to meet the diagnosis, especially under the DSM-5, they have to be insistent and adamant that they are the gender that they identify with. Um, and it's because they're monitored for so long, that's a feeling that, again, insistent, consistent, persistent uh, over time. And the way that um, at least Diane Ursafat, uh, who is one of the doctors at the gender clinic in San Francisco, what she does to distinguish, she tries to distinguish if the kid is engaging to see if they have a sense of it, a sense of their own gender, they see if they are engaging in what's called either fantasy play or serious work. So if they're just pretending to be, let's say, Elsa versus, no, I'm a girl, uh, I, I want to wear the dress uniform for school um, and very much identify uh, with the gender that they identify with. Mm -hmm. But isn't, I guess, there the... The concern that perhaps we are almost enforcing some of these socialized gender norms? Well, here's here's where it gets a little confusing. I think it gets it, it's a little confusing in the sense that we use the term gender dysphoria. Um, and I've said multiple times that I think that's a little misleading of a term because we conflate gender with gender norms, gender, right. you know, gender, gender rules. And truthfully, especially under the DSM-5, thankfully, uh, it's very much a combination of gender and sex. So it very much specifically has to also revolve around the um, uncomfortability with one's own body. Like anatomy, right? Exactly. So if you listen to parents of trans kids, um, one I definitely want to point to is Debbie Jackson. Um, listen to her story of her daughter, Avery, and she'll specifically say that at first it started with toys, it started with clothes, and she just brushed it off as, oh, he's just effeminate. And then she started noticing that he was incredibly uncomfortable or she was incredibly uncomfortable with her anatomy, her penis. Um, I'm not going to shy away from terms. No, no, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, so she noticed that and she noticed that he was having, she was having a lot of distress over it. Um, and that's when she started doing research on what this possibly could be. There, there definitely is a physical component. Um, if the child is only having, uh, only shows a preference for toys or things of the opposite gender, uh, that by itself doesn't, isn't enough to constitute a diagnosis. And I think, um, especially as kids get older, especially because uh, Christina Olson, who does a lot of research with trans kids, uh, did a study showing that gender identity of kids who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria ha have as deeply held an identity as their cisgender peers. So they identify just as much, their identity is just as strong as their cisgender peers. So it's, so that rules out this idea of confusion, that they're confused or that they're conflating um, liking female things with being female. They have an understanding that that's separate from identity. Like all of these things, it's making it sound very, I guess, concrete, very empirical, uh, which I think medical diagnoses should be. But you mentioned the statistic earlier about how there have been several studies about this, but one such study mentions that around 80% of children who um, display gender dysphoria when they're younger, as they get older, 
um, do not end up being transgender or identifying as the opposite gender. There, there is a, a maturation process with children and other, um, I guess, medical issues like borderline, borderline personality disorder you know, these medical professionals, they're actually very hesitant usually to diagnose minors with them because a lot of the symptoms um, happen to coincide with general feelings of puberty, um, feeling lost, anxious, unsure of the, themselves, all of these different feelings. Um, with, with that in mind, would that make you any more hesitant to support even something like a social transition, knowing that for a lot of maybe even most of these children who display gender dysphoria, they will end up identifying later on as their natal sex. No, for a couple different reasons. Um, first of all, the study, the Steensma study, where the 80% comes from, there are a couple different issues with it. Uh, first of all, uh, it took the diagnosis for gender identity disorder, which the problem there is that it did conflate gender nonconforming kids with kids with gender dysphoria. So it didn't have that differentiation that we do now to get that gender dysphoria diagnosis. So that immediately throws those out. The other thing is that Steensma himself is very adamant about how it was that study that they did was not uh, trying to measure or cannot be used as a measure of desistance and persistence. What they were trying to do was see what factors contributed to persistence and desistance. And actually a lot of those, uh, a lot of what he found is what was used to uh, change the standards from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5. And he actually found that um, uh, their persistence starting around the age of 10 and subsequent years persistent the persisters indicated that their cross-gender preferences and behavior and their gendered identity remained stable but that their dysphoric feelings intensified so essentially their identity was still the same they were still just as sure that they were the opposite sex but once puberty started they became a lot more distressed so that's uh that's and that's definitely one thing that uh, I believe we see in kids that get that gender dysphoria diagnosis or move on to puberty blockers. They are extremely distressed over the fact that their body is about to irreversibly change. Um, that uh, honestly, I can tell you from myself, that is exactly what I experienced when, when I was that age, um, as opposed to those who desisted, uh, it decreased, uh, over that time. So those that are moving on to the next step, we're very specifically seeing that they are distressed. Uh, they're, as puberty starts, they become uh, more suicidal, uh, self, do self-harm. Um, it's depressions really sets in and it, it really starts to affect these kids' lives and their mood and their, uh, their schoolwork. And, and I can tell you from personal experience, again, that's exactly what happened to me when, when I came out. It's because that was, um, I was going through that at, I think it was like 11 or it was 12. Um, and that's, a, that's a common experience. And that's the other, the other thing. Uh, one more point that I want to say is that back when Steensma was doing his study, the typical, uh, way that kids like that were treated was not via affirmation. They were being treated by items, uh, uh treatment like what Ken Zucker did, which was more akin to what we now know as conversion therapy. It was trying to get the child to stop having those behaviors. And unfortunately, those techniques harm a child psychologically so, so much that you may think they're desisting, but what they're doing is they're just trying to please you because they know they're not in a safe environment. 
Um, and again, I, I tell you from personal experience, that is exactly what happened uh, with me, uh, where I was put through conversion therapy and you just get go into survival mode. And that's what happened to a lot of these kids because of the fact that the desistance studies, they weren't measuring, let's say 10 years in the future, they were measuring shortly thereafter. And that's, uh, that's a point where they're starting to um, be a little more guarded about who they are because they know that they're going to be punished uh, for it. Well, that's actually, you know, in, in the study, and I think it's the 2013, it's the Dutch study that you're re referencing, because um, there, there have been several studies done about persistence versus desistance, and m all of them have found that a majority do eventually des desist. I personally would love to see even more studies done about this. I don't think there's any such thing as too much data, especially when we're dealing with something that is, is so important. I, I we want to have follow-ups. We want to know how these children are doing 10 years, 20 years down the line. I think they should also control for things like environmental factors, whether they've, you know, kept up seeing therapists, peer groups, and all of that stuff. Um, so the study does note that uh, the, I guess, the degree to which you felt gender dysphoria when you were first diagnosed, as well as your age when you were first diagnosed, uh, were predictors of whether you would persist or desist with your gender dysphoria. So if you're feeling it when you're five, and you're diagnosed then, you are less likely to persist than if you were diagnosed when you were 13, which to me does make sense because I think when we're starting to get into those later years, you do develop a, a stronger sense of your own gender identity. Um, but I think ultimately, because there is this study, and I would, again, totally admit that there should be more work done on it, isn't that enough to give you any sort of pause, especially like you mentioned um, puberty blockers and things like that aren't given to five-year-olds or anything like that, but you put out the number eight, nine, even 10, I think a, a lot of people might believe, even if it's not permanent, that giving a child those types of medications uh, for something that may or may not persist into adulthood um, it, it is quite, quite an extreme step. Would you are you, I guess, understanding of those concerns, those people who might say, even if you do, did end up transitioning, that it's better to wait? The current diagnostic system is working. And the reason we know that is because, yes, there are detransitioners, but there has not been a single case of someone who was prescribed uh, medical treatment, either puberty blockers or hormone treatment, while under the age of cons consent, who has later gone on to regret having had said access. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't desist. As I said, there are two people in the Steensma study and one person in the Norman Spack study who uh, desisted, not necessarily desisted, they had a better understanding is the way they, they describe it, of their gender identity and found out that they didn't really identify with either or and ended up being what they called genderqueer or um, just gender nonconforming. Uh, but the, even they will say that they don't regret having gone through that process because they needed that pause and that time to really understand themselves. So but knowing this, I mean, that I guess and knowing that you it's have been, to admit mm -hmm. that this is a fairly new phenomenon, right? I mean, it it's true that we, we don't have all of these cases of people who, when they were children, being given these hormones now saying that they regret it. Um, but I, I think we're, we're seeing more and more numbers of this happening. So is there any part of you that does wonder what's going to happen in 10 years, what's going to happen in, in 15 years when these kids who were in, in a lot of ways, maybe the first people to undergo this and, you know, this 
particular diagnosis and the treatment plans when they get older? Do you think there's any chance of that happening? Maybe not now, but in the future? Well, I mean, there's always a chance. I'm not going to say that there's no chance. But the truth of the matter is, I think it's a misconception that it's so new. Uh, puberty blockers have actually been used on trans youth since the mid-90s and earlier for precocious puberty. And none of those kids became trans. But the, the important thing is that we actually are seeing the first generation that was prescribed puberty blockers and went on to cross-sex cross hormones and surgery, they're actually not as young as you think. They're actually closer to their late 20s at this point. I mean, you see the case of, let's say, Kim Petras, who is an international pop star at this moment. You see the case of um, Nicole Maines, who's on Supergirl. You see Jazz Jennings herself. I mean, she's about to go to Harvard. Uh, these kids who were prescribed this treatment are actually thriving in a world that is ever-changing in front of them. So I think that speaks to the fact that these treatments are life-saving and these it's it's necessary for for these kids to live the best lives that they can. And what it, especially when I talk to parents of trans kids, it's it's apparent to me that these kids are growing up in a world that was not available when I was growing up. And I, I see them I, I see them having uh, a better world and a better life than their, as we call them, transcestors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I did want to bring up, and I, I don't want to keep you all night, but I did want to bring up the issue of what's it, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Now, this isn't like a, an official term or anything, but it is the phrase that one study at least used to refer to the phenomenon of especially young girls in certain peer groups and clusters um, rapidly developing symptoms of gender dysphoria and going on to at least want to transition. Um, the survey, it has been criticized, of course, um, and I, I'm not going to say it's perfect. Again, I would always say that more studies, more data is better, uh, but it is an interesting concept. They kind of hypothesize that in some ways gender dysphoria acts as a social contagion, um, similar to, you know, we, we see this with suicides and even self-harm among teen groups. Um, it, they, they can in, be influenced by what their peers are doing. Do you think there's anything to that? Because I think there's a big debate over how much of gender dysphoria is something that's biological, innate, maybe neurological versus socialized, right? I mean, I, ideally, I would love it if there was like a brain scan and we could be sure. Uh, I think it would help a lot and it would also help to the solidify the the... I guess, validity of people's identities who are trans, right? Because there are a lot of people who say it's made up a fairy tale. I I'm not there. I'm trying to rely as much on the science as I can and what, uh, you know, neuroscientists have seen with brain scans of trans versus cisgendered people. That's fine. Um, what, what are your views on this whole rapid onset gender dysphoria? Well, the, the truth is that rapid onset gender dysphoria isn't, isn't a new phenomenon. It's, it's, it's not recognized medically, and the thing is that the DSM and the uh, WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care, have recognized that not all gender dysphoria starts at childhood. Um, the WPATH standards specifically state um, many adolescents and adults presenting with gender dysphoria actually do not report a history of childhood gender nonconforming behavior. Therefore, it may come as a surprise to others, parents, family members, when a youth's gender dysphoria becomes first evident in adolescence. And that's exactly what that specific study was describing. This, um, the researcher didn't actually work with the kids themselves. She took a survey from parents 
uh, who were describing what they were observing in their kids. It wasn't coming from the kids themselves. And I think if you asked the kids and you had someone who was working with those kids, you'd get a very different picture. So that's why I'm, I'm incredibly apprehensive to really give that study any sort of validity. Um, of course, you can make great studies based on survey data, but uh, the researcher has to be working specifically with these parents and with these kids, which um, somebody like Christina Olson does. She does a lot of the gender cognition study that I mentioned earlier. Uh, she did that, but she was working with every single one of those kids. Um, I think it's, no, it's not Lisa, Lisa Marciano who did it. Um, it. Oh, Lisa Littman was the researcher who did the rapid onset gender dysphoria. She didn't, she never worked a single day with any of those kids. So I'm, I'm very apprehensive and especially because she did um, take people or um, recruit for the study from sites that already had an anti-transgender bias or parents who already were apprehensive about accepting their kids. So I, I question that. There's a, little, there's a little more nuance to that study. And I think there would be validity if she would work with the kids and that was the, the experience of the kids. But in this case, I, I just can't give it validity because we've already described these experiences for, for decades in the WPATH standards of care. Well, don't, don't you think it's interesting, though, and this is one of the things from the, the Littman study about ROGD that I thought was interesting, that they, they these parents reported that in for most of them, I, I think it's something like, um, da, 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 da. I can't find the exact one, but most of them reported that their children in their child's peer group, peer groups had at you know, 50% of them were also trans or uh, identified as something like non-binary. Uh, considering the overall population of trans people in the United States, that seems like a huge overrepresentation. It, it definitely does seem like that would kind of at least make me wonder. And if, if these children are, or sorry, these teens are reporting gender dysphoria and hadn't had any signs of or symptoms of it before, at least not any uh, documented ones that the parents could tell. And then not only are they now describing gender dysphoria, but a lot of their friends are as well. Doesn't that sort of make you wonder whether this is perhaps a phase which teens have been known to go through versus something that is persistent, um, you know, over, let's say, 10 years, if it's just something that seems to have sprung up? So, again, there's nothing that's going to happen medically uh, while they're under the age of consent without that diagnosis. So you would still have to have it be insistent, consistent and persistent over at least a period of six months. So it's not like these kids are coming out and immediately hormones the next day. Um, that's a different. That's. But I mean, I think there. a lot of but people I, might believe that six months is quite short. And we're talking about six months before uh, specifically ho uh, hormones, right? Not surgery. Yeah, exactly. No surgery. Uh, usually somebody has to be monitored for at least two years and you have to get two different letters. It's there's there's a lot more to surgery than people people realize. It's it's a lot more gate kept than um, than anything else. It's it's still to this day. But uh, as for the peer group, I, ju I just wanted to mention something regarding that. Um, people don't realize just how much because trans people have always been outsiders, how much when we find that we don't get the acceptance, we we seek each other out. Uh, it's it, that's how we've been historically. People think that, oh, I I've 
may maybe seen one trans person but the the problem is that typically if you've seen one trans person you've probably seen at least five because uh it's kind of that joke we travel in packs <laughs> so um <laughs> i that's that's why i kind of question that i don't know if these kids have sought each other out or if they've always been friends and you know all of a sudden all of them came out it, it, there's a and the fact that it's a report of the parent and not the kid again makes me question it so th there's a lot more nuance to, for me to take that claim at its face value mm -hmm. and i think ultimately what both of us would like is to see everybody kids whatever um happy healthy and I, i'm kind of of the position that you know, I know for someone who is trans and an adult, it's it's very, I guess, might be obvious for you to look back and say, man, I knew exactly how I felt when I was younger. Uh, if I would have been able to transition sooner, then my life would have been different. Um, but, I, I, you know, still for me, the, the issue of trying to understand what is happening in, child, in a child's mind is very hard. I am glad that it's not, I, I'm a girl, here you are, hormones and <clears throat> surgery. Um, but I, I do think that even with something like a social transition, that there may be, uh, you know, emotional or psychological effects if that is not actually um, what you will later be identifying as. And I'm sure as someone who's trans, you can understand how important even things like being perceived as the gender you want are. So I, I think some of the people who brush off, oh, it's it's just social there's no medication yet that that is there is still weight to that i think yeah and definitely uh, it's it's always been recommended that while the person is tr transitioning and even these kids if they're going through a social transition and they think it might be something that they're going to do in the future they're being monitored consistently so they have psychological assessment extensive psychological assessment to see you know that's the reason that's actually part of the reason for puberty blockers is to give them more time to explore if there could be other things there without pushing the kid in any specific direction which is the point of affirmation therapy it's not to move them toward transition it's to give the child uh, a chance to explore and to kind of find out where they lie and puberty blockers give that time social transition gives that time it's definitely not something like okay they're uh they're diagnosed and then we don't see them again until they're you know they're they're 10 or 11. they're consistently monitored to um mitigate any of those factors mm -hmm. and I, this is kind of just the the last thing that that i want to touch on and it's not necessarily i i guess it is part of the whole question we have seen cases um in, in canada specifically and I, I think some in the states as well where parents have been at odds with things like court systems and um you know their children's uh, therapists psychiatrists psychologists a whole slew of different medical professionals i think have been brought into this conversation where um their child is wanting to undergo hormone therapy and the, ch the parents do not want that. It's actually kind of being established now that in some places that may be grounds for the child to be removed from their parents' custody. What are your opinions on that? Uh, I think it's it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think there was one case here in the U.S. in Ohio. I think it was a trans boy. And if you read what was going on with that child, not even a child. I think he was 16 or 17 at the time when they put him with his grandparents. Um, his parents were basically telling him things like, you're going to hell. They, they were emotionally abusive to the point where he ended up on suicide watch and after uh, an attempt. Uh, and this was going on over a, a while. So I think that's a case where it is definitely child abuse. And that's where 
at least legal professionals and the psych medical professionals uh, in conjunction with the legal professionals should come in. Uh, I think if it's just a case where there really is no there, there's nothing that medical professionals are observing to really have that concern. Maybe that that might be a, a case to just kind of step back. But especially if the child is undergoing emotional and maybe even physical abuse, they definitely need to be you know, cared for in a different way. Well, I, I think that's something that I would hope everybody would agree with that things like emotional abuse, physical abuse, definitely uh, telling your child that they're unwanted, unloved, anything like that, regardless of how they're behaving in terms of their gender is absolutely unacceptable. But Julie, thank you so much for coming on, having this conversation. I hope the people who are watching this have something new to think about. Maybe if people want to follow you, what you're doing, where can they find you? Oh, I'm on Twitter, Julie Ray, J-U-L-I-E-R-E-I, -E -E, like the store, not the pop star. So that's <laughs> the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, you can check out my stuff on IMDb whenever I have a new project or I have a new show that I'm on. I, I post it there, but definitely Twitter. Come have a conversation and uh, be nice. Please yeah, be nice to each definitely. other. Definitely. <laughs> uh, again, thank you so much. I'm so glad we could do this. Thanks, Lauren. It's been a pleasure.